The Jewish state will include the ports of Haifa and Tel Aviv and the whole of the Negev Valley. The Arab will occupy the fertile eastern part. Jerusalem will come under United Nations trusteeship. The resolution of the Dutch Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. This is Plausibly Live. In the ashes of the Second World War, as the world began to discover the extent of the crime that had been committed, the Holocaust, the cost to other nations, the destruction that had taken place, it had become particularly clear that in the attempted eradication of the Jews by the Nazis and by other actors as well, that there was going to have to be something that would do a better job of preventing such a thing from ever happening again. It was believed that the Nuremberg trials, at which the Nazi war criminals were put in the docket and given the opportunity to rationalize their actions, would help with that. What actually, unfortunately, seemed to come out of the Nuremberg trials was a two-pronged argument from the Nazi war criminals that we were, A, protecting ourselves from the Jews, and when it became obvious that that wasn't going to work, it became, well, we were just following orders. But as we have seen in recent days, the hatred is still there. And the question becomes, how do you stop it from ever happening again? It's the same question that they had in 1946. How do we stop this from ever happening again? As we watch what's happening these days, it becomes clear that the answer is much further away than we thought it was. In recent years, it seems like there had been movement towards some sort of solution, but that quickly became apparent that it was not. So we find ourselves back in history again, wondering what exactly we could do, if anything. In 1917, the British Empire conquered the Ottoman Empire, entered Jerusalem uh, by 1918, the end of World War I. But in 1917, the British ordered, issued what was known as the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration stated very simply that the British Empire was committed to the idea that there must be a Jewish homeland and it must be in what was then known as Palestine. By 1920, the British had been mandated by the League of Nations to oversee that area. It was called the Mandate for Palestine. And this particular mandate actually required, required the British to actually put the Balfour Declaration into action. They wanted to see an actual homeland for Jews 
in that area, Israel, Judea, Galilee, the homeland, the, 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 the Holy Land. And they wanted that done so that this problem could be avoided. But by 1939, the world had, of course, changed. By 1939, you had a situation in which World War II was breaking out. And the British, who had had this mandate for many years, were very concerned about some things. They were concerned about some things, some fallout from uh, the First World War. And what they were primarily concerned with was that the Arab the Arab population in the area would be supportive of the British war effort. And unfortunately, what they were noticing was that the Arab population, finding simpatico with the Nazis and Adolf Hitler, were leaning into Adolf Hitler. They were leaning into that idea that they would not support the United the, the United Kingdom, but instead would probably support the Axis powers in their conflict. And so the British in 1939 issued a new paper that essentially said, we no longer find it in our interests to create a Jewish homeland in the Palestinian mandate. So they re- re- reversed themselves on that. As the war went on, of course, we know what happened. And by the end of the war and by the end of the Nuremberg trials, it was clear to the entire world that something needed to happen. The Balfour Declaration is what made sense. And so, despite the fact that the British had reversed themselves, the United, the new United Nations decided to go ahead with a new plan to end the, the British mandates. And there were more than one, by the way. There were British mandates in Palestine, Transjordan, Egypt, uh, so forth and so on. But they decided to end those. And so they came up with the 1947 plan for the partitioning of Palestine. And in this plan, known as Resolution 181, they divided up the land between an Israeli state, a Jewish state, was not known as Israel at that point, and a independent Arab areas. Now, this was all caused because in the meantime, between the between you know World War II and and this era before World War II, really, you had seen an increase in Jewish immigration to the area. You had seen a, a, a massive growth in nationalism on both sides, both Jewish nationalism, known as Zionism, and Arab nationalism. This nationalism, uh, which again, you go back to Mr. Miller and World War I, nationalism, one of the three causes of all wars, had led to a great deal of militant violence in the area that the British were having to suppress and having to deal with. There were economic and social disparities between the Jewish settlers and the Arab settlers, the local populations. We're seeing a lot of differences between that. There was, of course, in the post-war era, a great deal of international pressure. We, as a world, have to do something because we can't 
have this ever, this Holocaust thing ever happening again. As the British announced that they were withdrawing from the mandates because of their problems, it led to differing views on how to partition this. It led to arguments with that. There was a lot of uncertainty and fear, and fear is always, you know, an issue. And of course, those regional dynamics, it's easy to get lost in just Arab, Israeli, and Palestine. But it's easy to forget that there are surrounding countries and surrounding issues that become part of this. And so when this 1947 plan is put on the table, the United Nations sees this as the best solution. Neither of these two partitions are seen as strictly independent countries. They are, in fact, one country with two separate areas of control. They're an economic union, is the term that the United Nations puts on it. And to avoid what they see as the most flammable point of, of conflict, under this plan, Jerusalem is transferred to United Nations trusteeship. In other words, it becomes basically a free city under the control of and management of the United Nations. This is 1947. The United Nations hasn't been meeting all that long, hasn't been in existence all that long. One has to wonder what their concept of that would have actually been, how they would have actually maintained that control of Jerusalem. There is a vote on November 29, 1947, in which the United Nations, by a margin of 72%, approves the plan. So why doesn't the plan go into effect? Well, while the Jewish population and Jews around the world welcome the plan, Arab leaders, such as Amin al-Hassani, who is the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, do not. They are leading voices for rejection of the plan, they carry significant influence amongst the Arab population, and they don't like Jews. They oppose Zionism, they oppose the establishment of a Jewish state. There are others as well. The Arab High Command is, uh, is in this as well, as well as Higher Committee, sorry, along with uh, King Abdullah of Jordan. The Arab League is rejecting of this. There are other Arab states, as I talked about, King Farouk of Egypt. They all oppose this plan. And the problem is that just because you have a plan doesn't necessarily mean that you can carry it out. And while Jews around the world are celebrating this idea of this partition plan that will give them a permanent homeland, the plan is still... It's not perfect, and and you got to understand that there are Jewish resistance to it as well. There's there are Jews even today who believe that a secular or civil Jewish state is counter to the principles of Torah. Now, for whatever it's worth, I don't agree with them, but there are significant movements within Judaism that believe that, and they have their reasons for it, and 
I understand their reasons. I don't agree with them, but I understand them. And I would also point out that some of those groups, clean Orthodox, have long opposed uh, involvement in the Jewish government and are exempt from service in the Israeli military. One of the more remarkable events of the past few weeks has been the enlistment of some of those members into the Jewish army, into the Israeli army, Defense Force, uh, as a result of the October 7th attacks. This whole plan hinges on both sides accepting it and both sides moving forward to control it. But of course, it is outright rejected by the Arabs, led by those folks that we just mentioned. This plan is just absolutely no. We're not doing that. We're not going along with that. In the broad spectrum of things, some of their complaints are sensical. I will tell you that. They oppose the establishment of a Jewish state. They don't like the plan because they feel like it gives the Jews too much land. They don't like that idea. But at the same time, one wonders what the counter is. Again, something has to be done. If your counter is, we're just going to wipe them out, we're going to finish what the Nazis set out to do. And remember, uh, there were Arab leaders who wanted to do that. It's not going to work either. And so ultimately, the 1947 plan, Resolution 181-3, because it's the third version of it, is rejected. Which leads directly to when the British withdraw in May of 1948, the immediate declaration of the Israeli independent state by David Ben-Gurion. And of course, that leads immediately to the 1948 war where the Arab nations invade what is now the state of Israel and are soundly defeated in that effort. This will go on, of course, for many, many years. We will have wars in 67, we will have wars in in 73, we will have border conflicts into the 80s, and it will even have an impact, believe it or not, on on other things as well. The Cold War. Much of the conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States revolves around how each sees the situation in Israel between the Arabs and the Israelis in that era. I have listened to fellow submariners tell me stories of being in the Mediterranean during both the 67 and 73 wars. It's fascinating how it affects that. It also, you know, leads to other things, a lot of power dynamics, regional issues, national identity, nationalism uh, amongst both sides. There is... A lot of efforts in peace negotiations, a lot of efforts that will fail, because ultimately there's there's still that underlying hatred. When we look at the 1947 United Nations mandate, when we look at the resolution to end the mandate, partition the land, you have to wonder what might have been. What, what if this had worked? It didn't. But it leaves us with wondering what potential pathways to peace are there that are left, especially given what's happened in recent days. Clearly, 
there is no real effort at this point to actually solve the problem. And that bothers a lot of people, including myself. In 1997, because it's been that long, I was privileged to go to the Holy Land, to Israel. And I've, I've said this before, it's, it was 10 of the best days of my life. And one of the things that was best about it was there was a gentleman who was our tour group leader. Now, I had a bad habit of getting off the tour. Um, one, of, one of my favorite photographs, and I'm not showing it here, is the, the entirety of the tour is on the bus. Uh, my ex-wife and one of the tour leaders are standing out in front of the bus, and I'm taking a picture from up on top of the up on top of the the uh, waterway there at Caesarea, because once again I was late. I wanted to see things, and everybody was always waiting on me. One of the best parts of the tour, though, was our tour guide, a gentleman by the name of Anis, who I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with after the tour. I, we would sit down over coffee and talk about things, and Anis I found to be one of the most interesting people I've ever met. He was intelligent. He was well familiar with his job, which was, you know, that of a tour leader. And he was a historian like me. He understood meanings and he understood what things were about. And, and when I took this picture of him standing in front of the mosaic of the holy city of Jerusalem, Hagiopus, Jerusalem. It's just an example of him showing you things that you would never see just looking at. And the thing about Anis is that he is a Palestinian. He's a Palestinian. Let me say that again. He's a Palestinian. He's not Jewish. He is an Israeli because he was a citizen, but he was Palestinian. And yet, it was a lesson in understanding that we had a united purpose, which was to preserve all of the history of this land, all of the ideas and things that mattered. And in that personal experience of spending those 10 days with him over there, I came away with a much better understanding of Palestinian thinking, Palestinian ideas. And it was actually Anis who encouraged me to go uh, to the Arab quarter in Jerusalem, which I did by myself, which is something they tell you not to do. And I did it anyway. And I had a remarkable time. It was an interesting experience. At the end of the day, I don't know what the solution is. I know what one side believes the solution is, which is to wipe out the Jews. That is a hatred that has existed since time immemorial and will continue to exist. How do you eradicate that idea, that hatred? How do you get rid of it? We have fought world wars, we have had trials, we've had negotiations, we've had transfers of hostages, and yet nothing seems to work. How do you get rid of that? And I don't know the answer. But I do know that the one thing we are told to do over and over again is to pray for the peace of Yerushalayim. Shalom, Yerushalayim.